Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, Ad Nauseam listeners, to episode 89 of the podcast. I am here this evening. It's a muggy, humid, balmy evening. Is it balmy? It's balmy. Okay. Oh, in, it's balmy. <laughs> in Vomitorium South uh, with my friend and co-host, Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle. How are you this evening, Jeff? I'm feeling good. Not crazy about the balmy. No. But uh, but no, I'm, I'm feeling good. It's close, right? It's very close. You walk out and it feels like you're still inside. There's a, a curtain of moisture wrapped all around you. Yeah, yes. And and not there's no way that could be in a good way. No, it's in no. It's a bad way, right? But it, down here in the bunker in yes. Vomitorium South, it's, it's, it's very comfortable. It's cool. So I'm feeling good. I'm feeling better. You doing all right? I'm doing okay. I'm a little disturbed by our matching wardrobes. Yeah, exactly. And we actually, we matched the table and the chairs. Totally unplanned. <laughs> it's all in black. It's the Johnny Cash of podcasts. Yes, exactly. There's some kind of Jungian synchronicity going on there. You think so? Yeah, I, I just don't, I don't want to plumb or explore. Okay. Let's, let's leave that alone. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe some liminality. <laughs> yeah, right, right. It's too early in the podcast for liminality. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So Dave, we got um, we have a shout out this this week. Yes, we do. Yeah. I'm glad to have it. I must say. Yeah. So who is who is this? <clears throat> so this is a longtime friend of mine, uh, Jackie Huttinga Seitzma, and uh, Jackie says greetings from Houston, Texas. Oh, you know what's balmy down there? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Right. Okay. What do we, we have nothing to complain about. We have nothing to complain it's about. It's got to be swampy. I think that it is. Have you ever <laughs> been to Houston? I you know I've been to other many places in Texas, but never Houston. I think I've flown through Houston. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Houston means I'm a one day closer to you. I'm missing. What's you don't know that country western song? I don't know any country western song. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a hip diddler classic. <laughs> You're going to have to read the next part, if you could, because it's very flattering of me, and I, I can't read that on the Okay, air. I got you. So she writes, my husband and I met uh, Dave a number of years ago when we were all in college together. And in recent years, he has been a wonderful professor to our daughter who is majoring in classics. We should stop right there, right? Yeah. We should, no, are you, I want to keep going, right? She, uh, she says, professor is an insufficient description for someone who has invited his students to his home for meals and Bible study and has even planted a church that seeks to incorporate students. Uh, tr- wow. I have done this with the help of many other people. Yes. It wasn't just my project. Right, so. right. And so she, I mean, she's found this very encouraging, uh, especially as they've separated by many miles from uh, their daughter. And But she knows that she, she is receiving excellent mentorship from the guy across the table here. Yeah, yeah that's really great. That's very kind. Very yeah, cool. I didn't even have to pay her to say it. So yeah. I'd be willing to pay her, but I didn't have to. You didn't have to. No. Oh. So she says, it was through this connection that I became aware of your podcast, Dave and Jeff, and I've become a faithful listener over the past couple of years. Not only do I find your combination of knowledgeable insight and witty banter. Oh, there's that word. Banter. Yeah. Because some have found our banter... Tiresome and tedious. <laughs> you got Dave. You got to let this go. Okay. It is. We got. We got. A, we got a review. We got a review that was. Uh, uh, I mean, I think uh, whoever this was uh, ended up giving us four stars. Yeah, right? and so, lots of nice compliments. Uh, right, but I found that we could uh, delve into the tiresome and the, the banter. Tedious. Right, exactly. Right. right. You know, there's two things I can't take. Right. It's a. Uh, it's a uh, praise and criticism. That's correct. Right? <laughs> So she says, um, <clears throat> Jackie likes the banner. Okay. Yeah. A witty banner, a very enjoyable way to spend an hour each week. It has also helped deepen my own curiosity in history, literature, and language. Excellent. My ever growing to read next pile 
has definitely been influenced by your guests and the many interesting topics you have covered. In addition, as a classical teacher, you continue to to deepen my understanding of the classical world and how it has shaped the world we live in today. That understanding gets passed on in many ways to the students in my classes. So be encouraged that your podcast's influence extends even beyond those who are listening directly. That's fantastic. You know, if I had to you know, choose some words to describe what I would hope this podcast would right. be, that's it. You're right. Yeah, that's that, fantastic. That people would enjoy it, they'd learn something, find it a little bit useful yeah. in the other things that they do. And it, it has some kind of small ripple effect. Right. Yeah. But let's talk about Jackie. Uh, let's do it. So she says, I have been teaching for 15 years or so with the last seven at Providence Classical School in Spring, Texas. Currently, I teach my sixth graders Bible, history, and math. I have also taught literature and English grammar in past years. You want to take it up there? Yep. Since I teach American history from the 1800s through today, I was fascinated by the episode on the Founding Fathers and how they were influenced by the classics. The episodes relating to the Book of Acts gave more breadth of context uh, the lessons I teach on Acts in the New Testament epistles. Uh, Recently, I I listened to the episode on Pythagoras, and I'm sure my students will be interested to know that he was a vegetarian. Although as Texans who profoundly enjoy their barbecued meats, they'll probably think he was a bit nuts. (laughs) (laughs) That's very good. That's fantastic. Well, thank you to Jackie. Yeah, thank you so much for listening and for sending in this very nice shout-out with uh, lots of encouragement and some insight of your own. And uh, keep the torch lit out there, right? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And it took uh, took a bit of the sting of that review away, don't you? I guess. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> All right. All a little right. bit of salve. So, yeah, you know, it's so important what you're doing, Jackie, and all the rest of you who are teaching young minds the classics. We, uh, we really value that, and we want to thank all of we you. We do. Thanks. All right, Dave. So before we, we dive into it, um, let's, talk, let's talk popcorn. Let's talk popcorn. Yeah. What do you, what do you have to say about popcorn? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been waiting all my life for someone to ask to you ask, that. To ask you that, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. What do I have to say about popcorn? Yeah. Uh, well, I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoy the taste. I enjoy the texture. There's a, there's a bit of a controversy sometimes. Do you like the yellow? Do you like the white? Mm-hmm. Right? Are you a yellow popcorn or a white popcorn I, guy? I am ecumenical. Okay. Yes. I, I like all kinds of popcorn. I will admit that the white popcorn, um, it's a little, uh, little better flavor, a little more tender. But I really like the, you know, the, the full-on effect of the yellow popcorn. Yeah. It's more of an experience. If I'm sitting down to watch a, like a, you know, a three-hour movie, right. I want the yellow. You want the yellow. Yeah. It's got it's to sustain you and take you through. Yes. And you'll be cleaning it out of your teeth the next day. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But um, there is a place where ah. you can get um, all kinds of different kinds of popcorn from the yellow to the white and well beyond that. We're talking about Pop City Popcorn. That's right. right. In Kalamazoo, Michigan, Pop City Popcorn has been popping for a while. They are the official popcorn sponsor of the Western Michigan University Broncos. Oh, so the, uh, all their teams? Uh, all I the... can't say that. Okay. I'd like to say it, but I don't know if it's true. But so I, I won't imagine say you it. can find the Pop City Popcorn at, at you can uh, at all events. the football games. Yep. The Broncos, they you know they they what do they do? They sidle into the stable and they they strap on a feed bag and it's popcorn right yeah, there. That's right. So you like the two-way drizzle? Yep, I like that. Uh, I like the the the, the um, all the the chocolate and the and the caramel uh, stuff. I can't get enough of. You like the bacon cheddar? I do like the bacon cheddar yeah. and the parmesan. Parmesan. Yep. Yeah, which is made with real parmesan cheese. That's not, correct. Not the the, the fake uh, no genetically mutated stuff. Sawdust cellulose right. stuff that's blown out of a hose. No, yep. this is real grated parmesan. Yes. So let's say, just for the sake of argument, mm-hmm. argumenti causa. That our listeners love popcorn as much as we do. Yes. Well, they if they if that's true, 
they should go to popcitypopcorn.com mm-hmm. and scroll through some of the amazing offerings that this, this uh, great company has to have. That's right. And, and if they type in uh, the coupon code ANPOP20, mm-hmm. ANPOP20, uh, what do they get? They get 20% off their first order, first order and the satisfaction of promoting and supporting a locally owned family-run business and the satisfaction of promoting and supporting this podcast. Yes. Right. So uh, we highly encourage you to check it out. Um, you will not be disappointed. No way. All right, Dave. So what are we talking about tonight? Well, we're taking a bit of a detour, as you know, from uh, Virgil's Aeneid. Mm-hmm. I think we've done maybe five episodes on that. We finished up the end of book three. Yeah. And we're ready for the big set piece, which is book four. And right. the, the romance of our hero Aeneas and this poor, lovely woman, Dido. Right. So it, the episode which, if if listeners have had... Um, Limited exposure to the need or, or small exposure to the need, it's probably that book. That's correct. Yep. This is the 90210, you might say, of uh, the Aeneid. This is, yeah. this is the really interesting, gripping part. Does that make Aeneas Luke Perry? I don't know. You don't <laughs> I don't think I've ever watched a complete episode. I just thought I would surprise you with some potential knowledge of pop culture and throw that in there. Did you know it's been rebooted? There's no new, way. Yes. There's a currently a new... I've uh, not seen a, not seen a, a, a frame. But, okay. Uh, yeah. That's good. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah, good for you. So they know book four. Yep. But we thought in order to build suspense and, you know, provide a little more variety, we take a pause from that. And what we're presenting uh, this episode is... The the Bishop of Hippo, Augustine of Hippo, and his interaction with Virgil. Yes, yes, he was uh, he was a big fan. That's correct. Yeah. In fact, we're going to look at the ways in which Virgilian poetry and the classics generally shaped Augustine as a child. We're going to look at the famous passage in Confessions One, sections twenty and following where he talks about some of the horrors of trying to learn the classical languages as a little child. Oh, man. But then as we move along in the episode, we're going to see both how uh, Augustine paid off his theological debt, you might say, Mm -hmm. to Virgil, but he remained a lifelong devotee of the imaginative world which Virgil created. Excellent. Right up to the very end. That sounds sounds fascinating. Would Would you say... Um, maybe I'm getting ahead of things here, but do you think that typical some some of the um, of the sheen of Book Four we owe to Augustine? I mean, is he a conduit for the popularity of Virgil? Uh, for I would say he's more of a thermometer, a th- uh, okay, or a barometer. I'm not sure which which ometer I want, but I think that in the fourth century, uh, as we will see when we look at the you know the work of James O'Donnell and Peter Brown, everyone is understanding their lives through the lens of Virgil. Mm. Um, all Romans at the time. Yeah. This is at least intellectual Romans, of which Augustine was one. This is the world that they know. It's a world shaped by Virgil and his supreme masterpiece. Right. So it's definitely an indicator of Virgil's abiding popularity. I don't know. I guess you could probably say uh, for Christians. That's what, That was my follow-up question. Yeah, for Christians yeah. in particular, Augustine has guaranteed Virgil a spot. And this kind of paves the way for, say, Dante. Yes. Oh. You know, 700 years later, right? Definitely. Okay. All right. Yeah, very insightful. Fantastic. All right, so where do we start? You have have an opening quote for us? I have a very nice opening quote. It's a little long, but uh, I think it's going to be well worth the read. And this is taken from one of the world's leading, probably the leading Augustine scholar in the world, and that is Peter Brown. This is from his work, Augustine of Hippo, A Biography, which was first published in 1967. I read the revised edition in uh, the year 2000. This one, it was published. It's a massive work. It's like a brick. Really? Yes. But if, you know, the listeners are interested in some really solid education in the world of Augustine, 
This is the book, above all, that repays careful reading. Excellent. Well, let, let's hear the quote. Okay, so University of California Press, here we go. Augustine grew up a sensitive boy, acutely anxious to be accepted, to compete successfully, to avoid being shamed, terrified of the humiliation of being beaten at school. He would play in the fields around Tagast. That, that's where he was born, just to pause from the quote. There he stalked birds, watched the writhing tails torn off lizards. He thought of thunder as the rattling of the heavy wheels of Roman coaches on the rough flagstones of the clouds. Augustine will be educated to become a master of the spoken word. The content of his education was barren. It was frankly pagan. It was surprisingly meager. He would have read far fewer classical authors than a modern schoolboy. Virgil, Cicero, Sallust, and Terence were the only authors studied in detail. It was exclusively literary. Philosophy, science, and history were alike ignored. It imposed a crushing load on the memory. A friend of Augustine's knew all Virgil and much of Cicero by heart. The teacher would explain each text word by word, much as an art expert might pore over a painting with his magnifying glass. Yet the content of this education was not as important as its aim. This aim had remained unchanged for some 800 years. It was still being vigorously pursued in the 4th century in the crowded, noisy schoolrooms of the teachers of rhetoric as far apart as Bordeaux and Antioch. This was, quote, to learn the art of words, to acquire that eloquence that is essential to persuade men of your case, to unroll your opinions before them. Hmm. So that is Peter Brown quoting Augustine himself. To continue Peter Brown. The great advantage of the education Augustine received was that, within its narrow limits, it was perfectionist. The aim was to measure up to the timeless perfection of an ancient classic. Virgil, for such people, had not only never made a mistake, but had never written a line that was not admirable. Every word, every turn of phrase of these few classics, therefore, was significant. The writer did not merely write, he wove his discourse. He was a man who had weighed the precise meaning of every word. We need only see how Augustine, as a bishop, will interpret the Bible as if everything in it were, quote, set exactly as it should be said, excuse me, said exactly as it should be said, end quote, to realize the lasting effect of such an education. Hmm. All right. I see, I see um, a bit of tension here. I wonder if you can okay. clear this up here. So uh, on the one hand, Brown is arguing that, uh, so uh, Augustine along with his peers, studied this handful of classical authors. That's right. In but, fact, they, they studied four altogether that were called the Quadriga. Okay. And it's these four. Uh, Caesar, well, I mean, we can include um, <clears throat> Caesar sometimes, but it's Sallust, Virgil, Cicero, Terence. Okay. That's the four-horse chariot, the Quadriga. Okay. Um, so Brown suggests that, so they study them, not necessarily with an eye towards art, but rather no. th this is, this is uh, you're kind of mining them for kind of a, a practical right. uh, result. You, you're going to be a better persuader. Right. You know, you, you might, you're going to be a better lawyer. Right. And you're going to glean that kind of that oratory from these guys. It's very mercenary yeah. in, in that respect. But at the end, he's saying that um, uh, he seems to kind of, he's waxing eloquent ab about Virgil's style. You know, he weighs yes. the precise meaning of every word. Now, that strikes me as much more literary and kind of art, you know, ars gratia artists. Mm -hmm. So um, am I missing something or is it, or is that something that Augustine kind of, he took kind of the cold practicality and then he, he came to appreciate the, the, the warmth and the beauty of it. That's a really insightful question. I can't give a definitive or authoritative answer. I'm <clears throat> just giving you, you know, what I know based on what I've read and, yeah. and studied. But I think that the best answer we could give is, Although the study of literature had a very mercenary purpose for all of these men, the beauty of some of it 
Virgil in particular, was so overwhelming that along the way they fell in love with what they were reading, you yeah. might say. That's really striking. And then, and then also this, this detail of, um, Brown says, going back 800 years. Yes. And so he had been mercenary for a very long time. Yes. Well, I think he, I think he chose that, that time frame because 800 years puts us... It goes at back the, to Plato. Yeah, the peak of uh, Attic Oratory, right. right? Where there are people like Lysias and Antiphon and then um, Isocrates and Demosthenes, those 4th century masters... Mm-hmm. For whom uh, rhetoric is a sport. It's a game. Right, right. It's a blood sport, really. I mean, the, the goal is to is to um, just eviscerate your opponents rhetorically. Right. Make them look stupid. Uh, make your client look divine. Big money, big fame uh, involved in winning these debates. It's, rap, it's a rap battle throwdown. That's right. Yeah. All right. So, okay. All right. Um, but it, it just, I'm, it, I'm, my, my jaw is just kind of dropping at that, at this, that, um, that length of time, right, and um, how how much of this had not changed in its aim. I think and, that's fascinating. I, I agree, and the extent too. Uh, as far apart in the schoolrooms of the teachers of rhetoric, as far apart as Bordeaux, right, mm-hmm. South Central France, if my geography is correct, and Antioch, so way over on the Orontes River, you know, in modern day Syria. Yeah, that's a big stretch. Yeah, and in all the schoolrooms, what were these little boys learning? Here is how you can speak well. Here's how you can be a lawyer, or maybe if that doesn't work out, you can be a doctor. Whatever the case may be, if your parents have enough money, we got to teach you how to speak. Right. I'm kind of, I'm as I'm reading this, I'm also kind of embarrassed to realize that um, what would Augustine's native language have been? A Berber? Yes, he was a Berber. Okay. The people it's, that invented the carpet. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, a harsh, tough carpet, good for playrooms. Right, <laughs> but he spoke Latin from childhood. He did okay, right? but he had trouble with Greek. Right, and uh, later on in the um, in the Brown book, he talks about how Augustine came to Carthage, which was his first major university experience, mm-hmm. uh, covered in the Confessions, and he only knew Latin. He only spoke Latin when he started to move in the more rarefied world of imperial rhetoric. Many of his uh, contemporaries and competitors also knew Greek firsthand. And so he had stitched together a rudimentary knowledge of Greek philosophy, mostly based on Cicero's dialogues. Mm-hmm. Call back to De Natura Deorum series, there right? Check those out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't have any firsthand experience, uh, as many of his competitors did. Okay. So he was, um, despite this fantastic memory and an unbelievable ability to manipulate words he was still a provincial okay okay yeah yeah from that you know north african uh, place of tagast right right so um i mean when augustine is born i mean the, the roman empire is starting to fragment yeah so this is 354 okay right? he's born in 354 he dies in 430 and um it's starting to divide i would say more than fragment there's there's skirmishes around the edges in lots of different places yeah uh, in 410, so this is what, 60 years later, the Visigoths under Alaric, uh, they invade and sack Rome. Um, these were some Aryan Christians. But it's more of a division between East and West that's starting to emerge. Yeah. And also there's the resurgence of uh, full-blown paganism under the fellow named Julian the Apostate. Yeah, right, so, right. So this was, I don't know, six or seven years after Augustine's birth. I think it's 360, 361. It's about an 18-month period. And uh, Julian says we're going to we're going to revive paganism we're going to open up all the temples and we're going to make it illegal for uh, christian rhetoricians to teach in state schools right 
Right, right, right. Yeah. So that's kind of the climate. Gotcha. And the city of Rome itself has, has long ceased to be, you know, um, central. Yeah, right? absolutely. So everything is moving. Everything's moving east. In fact, Constantine, when he was declared emperor, I think it was 306, he's declared emperor in York, right? Right. He had never been to Rome. Yeah. Often emperors didn't even visit Rome. It, it was it was very, very different right. than in the classical period. Right. He, he, he plopped an arch there and then they moved on. That's right. <laughs> so now my, my understanding also um, of kind of Augustine's time and place um, is that North Africa had been, um, by the time Augustine comes around, a, a kind of a, a burgeoning area of culture yes. and literature. So, you know, my guy Apuleius right. Right, was uh, also... A Berber, okay, and grew up uh, in the in Madaurus, which I think Augustine spent some time. Yes, uh, there as well. So was this at the? My dates are really bad, but did he li- did Apuleius live into the early fourth century? No, he was second century. We're not okay. exactly sure when he died, okay. but, but somewhere he died somewhere around two hundred. Okay, so uh, you know, a, a, a while before Augustine comes along, but you have guys like uh, Apuleius, uh, Manutius Felix, mm-hmm. another Christian apologist, also a North African Tertullian. So there, there was there was a um, yep. there was precedent, right? Um, and so I mean, and the universities in, in Carthage and such, and so it was it was starting to become, at least by the second century. Uh, a place of culture and a place of, of, of writing and literature. And, and Absolutely. Learning. Okay. It's kind of hard for us to imagine now because we generally think of that area as completely barren and desert, right? Yeah. The Sahara. But apparently at this time in the fourth century, there was a fairly wide band of uh, highly fertile land um, from a plateau going down to the Mediterranean. Hmm. And so the Romans, you know, this was the Roman breadbasket. Right. Of very, course. very little... Uh, crops were grown in Italy of, of the kind they needed to sustain the massive population of the city. They just got it all from North Africa. Right. As I think I said on this podcast before, I had the privilege to, to, to travel in Tunisia about 20 years ago. And I remember one of the things um, our guides took us to are these massive subterranean granaries, mm. which are kind of Egyptian in their size and right. style. And, and these were, yeah, where the, where the Romans stored their grain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Which they stole from the people. Of course. Right. <laughs> They did give them culture, you might say. I don't know. They gave them the culture. We don't stole, want to stole the grain. Talk about colonialism, but Augustine was a part of that. Then, uh, by the time you know three fifty four that his he's born, his father Patrick was a middle class um, businessman. And what do min- middle class businessmen typically do? They spend all their money on their children's education. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, it's right. a common pattern throughout history. Sure. You make a fortune or a small fortune. You don't really want your son necessarily to follow in your footsteps. You have bigger aspirations. He's right. going to be a dentist, you know, or a doctor or something, or a yeah. lawyer in Augustine's case. Exactly. Exactly right. right. I share a birthday with... with uh, the yes, birthday. November 13. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm very happy about that. And away with words. Yes. Jeff, as we approach uh, Confessions Book 1, mm-hmm. we're going to see Augustine's feelings towards his education as a child. As he looks back some years later... Uh, and we're going to see his first encounter with Virgil. Okay. So could you read us a little bit of the Latin from section 20? Sure. Quid autem erat causae cur graecas literas oderam, quibes puerulas imbuebar, ne nunc quidem mihi satis exploratum est, adam averam enim latinas non quas primi magistri, sed quas docent qui grammatici vocantur. Mm. Very nice. Very, very nicely done. So this is uh, his first encounter with Greek literature, and I'm going to read the the Hackett translation. Okay. I'd kind of like to give my own, which you know, probably wouldn't be as good, but we got these sponsors. <laughs> so uh, so this is the, the Thomas Williams 
the Thomas Williams translation published by Hackett. I think it's uh, 2019. Okay, is, uh, is okay. Yes, quite recent. And uh, No, sorry, um, 2017. Okay. Mm-hmm. Did you know I have a connection to Thomas Williams? He was on your dissertation committee. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. So you know that each committee has to have what's called an outside reader. Right. Sometimes two, but at least one. So the other four members of my uh, committee were classics professors, and then uh, Professor Williams was at Iowa at the time. He may still be there. I don't know. Uh, he was my outside reader and uh, did a good job. Nice. So, is he an, an Augustan guy? Or? No, no. I think his specialty is um, the the high medieval period. So oh. he has published on Aquinas with our former colleague uh, Christina Van Dyke. Oh, really? Yep. He's oh, okay. translated some Aquinas, but I guess he's a man of many talents. Okay. So this is why we have his Augustan. What's his translation? He says, "But why was it that I hated learning the Greek? I had to study as a boy." To this day, I do not quite understand it. I loved Latin, not the elementary grammar, but the literature. Now, everyone can relate to that, right? (laughs) Without a doubt. All of our listeners are saying, yes, Augustine, yes. I did not love the elementary grammar. I love the literature. (laughs) So my students will often say, can we just skip all this charts and stuff? I just want to read the literature. Right. Yeah. You've got to know the the basics. Yep. Anyway, and then he goes on and says, for I found those earliest lessons in which I learned to read and write and do arithmetic as much of a chore and a punishment as all my instruction in Greek. But that too came from sin, from the vanity of the life by which I was flesh and a breath going forth and not returning. For those first lessons were, of course, better than the later ones because they were more dependable. I was being given the capacity, which I acquired and still have, to read any writing that I come across and to write things myself if I choose." How much better than those later lessons in which I was forced to memorize the wanderings of Aeneas, whoever that was, forgetting my own wanderings, and to weep over dead Dido, who killed herself for love, when all the while I had no tear to shed for myself, wretch that I was, dying in the midst of these things, far away from you, O God, my life." Okay, that does. He doesn't sound like he loves Virgil very much. There, no, it's a total distraction from what he said. He's saying what he should have been thinking about. Yes, right. Yes, and he even uses the word kogebar. Right. I was forced to read about this Aeneas, whoever he is. <laughs> right. Nescioquius errores of this Aeneas guy. Yeah. I think he's trying to get us into the mindset, though, of a person's first encounter right, with right, right. a great, a great literary name. Yes. Isn't this common? Have you had this experience? Have you ever stumbled upon a great author and didn't know it was a great author until other people tell you, oh, yeah, that's you got to read that. That's really great. Yes. And your first encounter with it has that kind of childish response. Maybe I don't see what the big deal is. Then you get further into it and you're hooked. I've had things like that. I, I've had um, I think I what I what I resonate with um, Augustine here is I, I've always I've always pushed back against being forced to read something. Yes. Right. And so one of the books that. Like I never read in school that many kids read in school is the Catcher in the Rye, you oh. know, the Salinger, mm-hmm. and one. I've did, never read it either. I, I in in, uh, in in grad school to distract me from what I was supposed to be doing. Right. I picked up a copy of the Catcher in the Rye and I loved it. Huh. Uh, but I do not think I would have loved it if I if my you know tenth grade English teacher said you must read this. I see. So yeah, you kind of discover something on your own. So I I totally get what right. what, what Augustine's getting at. This is very human. Right. Yeah. So do you think that uh, Augustine is saying he was forced to weep over dead Dido? Well, I think um, forced to weep over over dead Dido. I think I, when what I see here, he's kind of he's a, he's he's setting up. Um, I think he's setting up a later uh, you know, deeper appreciation for Aeneas. I think right. what, you know, he's he's saying 
you know, why was I worried about Aeneas's wanderings and, and, and encountering the, this woman when I should have been thinking about my own wanderings? Right? Mm-hmm. But I think what he's he, what I, I could be wrong, but I think he's setting up is that he, he'll come around to say that Aeneas's wanderings are a metaphor for his own wanderings. Yes. He can see himself in this character. I think that's exactly right. And so what, while he might be, you know, as a kid, he's saying, why do I have to read about this? Right. Um, why do I have to study the, the grammar? Um, you know, it, later on, he recognizes the deep value in, right. in all of that. There's a definite arc in all of the confessions, which is modeled after, and I'm not, this is not original with me, this has been noticed, you know, from the first time it was written, the first time it was read by others, a story arc that follows the general path of Aeneas's wanderings, hmm. right? So that mm-hmm. is, Augustine goes through a journey of the soul through the confessions, and he matures, he overcomes challenges, the challenges of sexual temptation, the challenges of Manichaeism, of Platonism, right? Cicero helps him out. He's a guide along the way. Yeah. Uh, and like Anchises, you know, in the story, uh, Aeneas's father, the story we've been telling in the other episodes, mm-hmm. till he finally arrives at the promised land of um, reconciliation and justification with Christ. Yeah. Uh, he's a much more interesting character, though, in a lot of ways than Aeneas. Augustine. Yes, because Aeneas still leaves you kind of flat, uh, even though um, it's the the end result is just as much guaranteed in the lives of both individuals. Right. In other words, we're only reading Augustine's Confessions, which he writes in 395, 396, 10 years after his conversion, because he successfully became a Christian, you might say. Right. Uh, And similarly, we know that Aeneas succeeded in establishing the Roman people. Yes. Uh, and yet I find Augustine far more compelling, and I don't think it's just because I'm a Christian. Right. No, I, I would agree with that. I mean, it's, I think it's a comparison to, you know, Aeneas, I think a lot of his flatness is that he's he's so compelled by destiny and, mm-hmm. and fate that he's, as a character, he's often handcuffed. Right. Whereas, you know, Augustine is losing the chains of his of his earlier life and to gaining a a, a, a freedom mm. in the in the Christ that he finds. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's that um explains a big difference. Hmm. Yeah. Should we go on to uh the next section here? Yeah. You want to read some Latin? I would love Latin? to. Yeah. Quid enim miserius misero non miserante se ipsum et flente didonis mortem, quae fiebat amando aeneon non flente autem mortem suam, quae fiebat non amando te deus lumen cordis mei et panis ordris intus animae mei et virtus maritans mentem meam et sinum cogitationis mei. Very nicely done. Thank you. Shall I give the, the shy translation? Yes, yeah, sheed. I sheed, think it, yes. okay. Right. This is also Hackett, and it's, uh, what, it's 2006. Okay. Is that right? With an, with an introduction by Peter Brown. Uh, but before you do, I just wanted to point out the really brilliant play on words with which this paragraph begins, yeah. right? I'm sure the listener heard it. Quid enim miserius misero non miserante. So this is the, you know, the etymological figure. We've got three different instances we have a comparative adverb, we have an adjective, miserius, misero, and then a participle, miserante. Yeah. Aug- nice. Augustine's brilliant. And so, and so in this translation, um, the attempt to kind of to replicate that is with pitiful, pitiable, and pity. Oh, yeah. Right. That's well, pretty good. It's not bad. And Williams has, what is more wretched, wretched than a wretch who feels no sorrow for himself? Okay. So he gets two of the, of two the three. Two of the three, right, mm-hmm. but misses the, the, hat, right. the hat trick there. That's right. It's hard to do. Very hard. Very difficult, right. Um, so we have here, nothing could be more pitiful than a pitiable creature who does not see to pity himself and weeps for the death that Dido suffered 
through the love of Aeneas and not for the death he suffers himself, uh, through not loving you, O God, light of my heart, bread of my soul, the power wedded to my mind in the depths of my thought. I did not love you, and I went away from you in fornication, and all around me in my fornication echoed applauding cries, well done, well done, for the friendship of this world is a fornication, a fornication against thee. And the world cries, well done, well done, so loudly that one is ashamed of unmanliness not to do it. And for this I did not grieve, but I grieved for Dido, slain as she sought by the sword an end to her woe, while I too followed after the lowest of your creatures, forsaking you, earth going unto earth. How do you like the translation there? Um, it sounded like it was growing on you as you read. I like, yes. Uh, I mean, I was, the thing I'm most curious about is, so it's his translation of the exclamations, euga, euga. Right. Well done, well done. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's so, a, you know, Greek word that's been brought into right, Latin. Right, of course, right. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, he, I think he nails that, um, I think that, that temptation that we all have, we, we want to fit in. Right. Right. And so you want to. You want to you want to do what everybody else is doing, so you're not you don't you don't stand against the, you don't go against the grain. Right? That's right. You just want to be accepted. Right. And so he he's a uh, and now he's of course he's lamenting that uh, to right. some degree as well. Yeah. yeah, I think this is so poignant. I I found this poignant the first time I read it. It's it's really gripping. You know, I didn't weep about these things. So the things in my life that were disordered and and sad, they didn't they didn't bring any emotion out of me. Right. Says Augustine. But when I read this made-up tale about uh, a woman who, you know, took her own life for love, that pulled genuine tears from me. Yeah. So this is kind of the the dark side of catharsis, you might say. Right. This is what um, <clears throat> I know. This is often misunderstood and hotly disputed. But at least one view of Aristotle's poetics is that part of the the value of theater is that it allows us to live vicariously through the actors. Yes. So we feel th things that are going on on stage. We don't have to experience them directly. Right. And that in some sense, that's a good thing. Yes, it's it's psychologically healthy, right? Mm -hmm. You leave it on the stage, and then you're purified to go into society and to be a better citizen, right? Yes. Yeah. But Augustine points out, and I think this is probably in keeping with his general, generally negative view of theater, right, that there's a danger in that, even in literature. And the danger is it can promote the wrong kinds of emotions. Hmm. What are, what are the wrong kinds of emotions? Well, what? these kind. These, th this kind. Uh. <laughs> well, it's, it's not that it's wrong to weep for Dido. It's good, but he doesn't have the proper emotion directed toward himself. I see. I don't know how to exactly to explain this. Yeah. And I'm not a psychologist, but if there's a finite amount of feeling to be had, you know, pity to be uh, doled out, you shouldn't waste it all on fictional characters mm. there's got to be some left for yourself and other real people right right no you know i i have this i have the same problem that augustine has right? okay. my my wife likes to tease me in that she says you know when uh you know our boys were born you did not weep you didn't mm. you didn't cry but you must not love them but but he said however if you watch the ending of the of the uh pixar animated cars where <laughs> lightning lightning mcqueen Selflessly gives up the piston and cup to go help his friend. Huh. Uh, that makes that makes me tear up. You're every a blubbering time. mess. Y yes, exactly right. It spills down into your bowl of yellow popcorn. Exactly right. So no, I, I mean, I, I understand. I'm, I'm wrestling with this. I'm conflicted about this huh. because the things that will will move me to tears are songs, right, or endings of cheeseball movies, right, yeah. but not necessarily real life yeah. struggle. I'm attempted. I'm tempted to say, Winkle, that yeah. that. 
I do the same thing and that maybe there's a character flaw there. Really? But, well, maybe, according to, to Augie here. Maybe yeah. so. Okay. It, it would be best to weep over both, maybe. Yeah. Right? To have, to have you know, gauged emotions toward what's uh, fictional and toward what's real. Right. So I don't think he's saying it's so bad that I wept for the death of Dido, but I had no tears for myself. Right. And I was a, a more pitiable character. Now, someone standing back may say, yeah, but Augustine, you know, you're writing this when you are uh, 42 years old, right? This mm-hmm. is 396. You're a mature man now. You weren't thinking that way as a child. Everything was just reacting, right? It's just coming at you one after another. Right. So he's really having pity on his, his uh, boyhood self. Yeah. You know, and, and maybe that isn't reasonable. Right, right. To expect yeah. that the boyhood self would, would get those things right. Yeah, exactly. Which is just making me feel a whole much worse about it's myself. It's making you feel worse. <laughs> yeah. When did you last watch Cars? But, uh, it's been a while. So my boys have kind of outgrown that. But that, I mean, back when they were younger, I saw it a zillion times. Did they say... And the ending got me every stinking time. <laughs> did they say, we can't watch Cars again. Dad's going to just cry. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think you know, that good art... Uh, can again, you know, provoke those kinds of emotions. But I yes. think the best art will. Well, and then it's the responsibility on you as the viewer, as the reader, is also to kind of take what's affecting you in the play, in the movie, in the book, and move it towards yourself. Yeah. Reflect it. And I think that's sometimes where I get stuck. You know, I leave it in the in the fictional realm, and I'm moved by it. And I say, oh, that's that's Aristotelian. That's that's mm. ca- that's cathartic. But I don't take it the next step. Okay, what is it saying about me, or where do I see my own life reflected in what I just mm-hmm. saw or read? I, I'm going to I'm going to speculate here that it has to do with the way in which you approach the work of art. I think when you sit down in your easy chair with your bowl of popcorn and your the yellow kind, yep, and yeah. your diet Mountain Dew, and you turn on Cars, you know you're going to have a certain kind of emotional experience. Mm-hmm. It's either going to be exhilarating, you're going to be throttled in some way, or it's pun, it's Cars. I, I got it. Okay, he's pass. <laughs> All right. Stay in my lane. Is that what you want to yeah, say? Yeah. Or, or you're going to have this emotional uh, feeling at the end. Mm-hmm. But you're not thinking about the events of your life that way. Right. You're not thinking of yourself as a spectator to the events of your life. Yeah, yeah. So if you sh- if you showed up in the delivery room when someone else's children were born, you might weep. Oh, this is so moving, right? Yes. But you're not thinking of your own life as a spectator. Right. Right, right, exactly. Plausible? Yeah, no, I like that. I, I'm a little distracted by the thought of kind of wandering to somebody else's childhood. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but no, I, I hear you. I hear you. But um, it's making me rethink of, of kind of the, the, the purpose of, of art and literature, even in my own life, and mm-hmm. how I even go about like teaching this in my mythology class, where I really want the students to make connections with their own lives and you know in these 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 plots and these emotions and such and these characters and so well remember in uh book one aeneas in carthage when he sees the tableau of the trojan war yeah. on the temples right he is witnessing art and what does he do he weeps in response right he yeah. says oh this must be a place of civilization look even here you know our fame will have its it's just reward. Right. So there's Aeneas uh, witnessing art and having an emotional response. But it is art that's directly about him. him yes. Right? Yeah. But Augustine knew this in some sense, right? Because if, if human nature is common and universal across time, space, um, ethnicity, race, yeah. men and women, there's so much more that unites us than divides us. Then when Augustine is looking at the death of Dido, 
it's a story that's in some way about him. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Which I think that he's ultimately this is where he's going right. with this. Right. He's going to bring these these things to, to things together. And on that note of stories about other people, yeah, it's time for the ads. All right. This episode of Ad Nauseum is brought to you by the good folks at Racial Coffee in Portland, Oregon. Jeff, tell me about your recently acquired Racial Eight, please. Well, well I'll tell you about a moment of panic I had this morning. Oh, so I went to make I went to make a a, a pot with my Racial Eight, and uh, I went to the kitchen, and the hand blown borosilicate uh, oh, no. uh, carafe was was gone. Oh no, it was gone. And so a moment of panic, but then I realized that my my, my wife uh, had actually placed it in the dishwasher. Oh. So it had not yet been gone through a cycle, so I, I quickly got it out, hand-washed it quickly. You hand-washed the hand-blown glass. I, yes, I did, and I, I put it back in, got the whole thing together, hit that button. Um, and you were in coffee paradise. Uh, coffee paradise. Bloom, brew, ready. Yeah. How many buttons did you have to push? There was a, like a calibration. You had to push a couple buttons. You had to pull a crank and maybe a lever and apply some lubricant to something. You're talking about like, like senor... Cafe. Okay. Right? This right. is something completely different. Dak and Blecker. This is this is a one touch. One touch. Yep. But and it's a hideous machine, though, right? A, you don't want to look at it. No, you, you can put up with the the ugliness of the machine because it makes good coffee. Again, that you're you're thinking of something else. Okay. So this is a beautiful work of art. Um, I have the the stainless steel with the walnut accents. Hmm. Um, I talked about the carafe. It's like a. a it looked like it, it. I think it it was hand sculpted. <laughs> how does one uh, How does one uh, brew with a walnut accent? <laughs> I'm not going to attempt a walnut accent here, uh, given the the shade that was thrown at our Scottish for the accent. Scottish, <laughs> right. the Scottish accent, <laughs> right? Um, but yeah, no, it and yeah, and then once I had, I got past my moment of panic, put it all together, I had the perfect cup of coffee this morning. Are you using the the Chemex paper cones? Um, I'm not using the Chemex paper. Should I be using the Chemex paper? Well, I don't know, but you're using a paper cone. Yes, of course. Okay. Yes. Uh, I imagine you are too, and you with your. No, paper? I've I've graduated. Oh, um, oh really? What do you? Oh, got? Yeah. Tell us about your. Oh, I have a stainless steel cone, uh, aftermarket. Um, I know that uh, Ratio has a has a partnership with the um, a, a very good cone maker. I can't remember the name, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna butcher it. But I just have an aftermarket uh, cone. And that way, I don't have to keep buying the paper ones. Ah, yes. It works very well. Excellent. It works very well. And so I had a delicious cup of coffee uh, this morning. And I, I let it stay in the carafe till the afternoon. Still warm, still warm. But then sometimes I like to pour it off over ice, have an afternoon coffee. Oh, that's and, an excellent uh, idea. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. If, if you had one of those kinds of machines that have a Kindle brick yeah. underneath, yeah. you know, um, it would burn. The, ro- the roasting pad you're talking the about? The roasting pad. You yeah. couldn't do that. No. No, 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 no. And this, uh, the the eight and the six, that's 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 not part of the machine. Right? Now we're being we're being a little bit um, probably inconsiderate of the audience because they want to buy one of these and of we course. haven't given them the code yet. Right. So if you're interested, audience, um, in either the eight or its younger brother, the six, uh, go to RatioCoffee.com and click in on um, the coupon box and you type in what's our code? This, this? it's A N C O A four A four, and that's a code that will be good till the end of July. And you get 15% off the six or the eight. Yes. Check it out. This episode of Odd Nauseam also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing, these guys have been with us from the beginning. They've got their offices in Indianapolis, Indiana, Cambridge, Massachusetts. They've been around for uh, pretty much exactly 50 years. Right. Um, they've been so good to us, and uh, they can be so good to you, That's audience. Right. Um, uh, Dave, tell us what you like about Hackett. Well, as we were prepping this particular episode, you know, I have some other translations of uh, Augustine's Confessions. Mm-hmm. The first one I read was not one of these fellows, uh, and there are some that are available, you know, um, 
public domain. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I'll bet Hackett has a good translation of the Confessions. I should go check that out. Turns out Hackett has two good translations right. of the Confessions. Yeah, that's one of these things that we've noted a, a number of times on the podcast is that it, uh, Hackett is one of these publishers where they they don't just choose one translator for one work. Um, you, they, you can find uh, translations, uh, many translations of the same ancient author. Ovid, we've got the Lombardo and the Ambrose. Yeah. For the Aeneid that we're covering, we've got the Lombardo and the Lenkrizak, the that's brand right. new verse translation. A wide, wide selection of authors. Yeah, and I think that's really unique for a publisher um, that, that puts out books like this. Right. And, but uh, unique, but really expensive, right? Pricey, hard to get your hands on? No. Very, very affordable. Okay. That's another draw. Um, uh, attractive volumes, uh, low cost, low price. Um, you're going to get something that you that you like. So, uh, audience, go to HackettPublishing.com, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, Publishing.com. Scroll through their catalog. Um, it's immense. It's, and again, it's not just classics. You can find things from, from all over the academic world. Latin American studies, uh, Asian studies. Religious studies. Everything. Everything. Um, so, find the books that you want. Um, put them in your little, your little digital satchel. And then the coupon code that you want to use is AN2022. And that will get you uh, two things, 20% off your entire order and free shipping. Check it out. You're not going to regret it. All right, Dave. So as we get back into this, we have a bit more from Chapter 21 to get to. Would you right. uh, read some Latin and, and translate as well? Sure. Et haec non flebam, et flebam didonum extinctam ferdroque extrema secutam, sequens ipsa extrema condita tua relicto te et terdra iens in terdram, et si prohibeirer e allegere dolerem, quia non allegerem quod dolerem, tali dementia honestioris et uberioris literae putantur, quam illae quibus allegere et scribere didici. All right. So um, you want to offer the, um, I, I'm mixing up, whose translation? That's right. So this is the uh, Thomas Williams translation. Williams, okay. So just to back up a second. For these things I shed no tear, but I wept for Dido, slain by the sword, chasing after an end to her woe. While I had left you behind to chase after the lowest of your creatures, dust returning to dust. Hmm. And if I were forbidden to read them, I would be sad because I was not reading something that would make me sad. It is by such madness as this that the study of literature is regarded as more prestigious and more fruitful than the lessons in which I learned to read and write. Hmm. So what do you make of this part here, Jeff? I thought you would like this. I do. If I were forbidden to read them, meaning the stories of Aeneas and Dido, I would be sad because I was not reading something that would make me sad. Yeah, I th- I, that's fascinating. And I mean, I I recognize something of that in myself as well. You know, you're drawn to things that um, uh, disturb. Yes. Yeah. I I, th- I mean, I see in this kind of my my love of horror movies. I was just thinking the same thing. Right. Something that can. Uh, bring out of you some kind of strong emotional response. Right. You, you want that fix. Yes, exactly. So I think there's something very humanly attractive about that. Mm. Right. And But I love the way he puts that. This is the... Um, the, the Sheed. Sheed. Yes. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep forgetting that. That's all Sheed. right. Uh, and if I were kept from reading, I grieved at not reading the tales that caused me such grief. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, I mean, do you, I mean, do you kind of get that on a... Well, are you drawn to things that you know is going to upset you? No, but I am. I am drawn to sad stories. I guess mm-hmm. I don't like. I don't like uh, happy endings because I find them implausible, inauthentic. Yeah, this is why I really like tragedy. 
tragedy resonates with me, I don't know. I guess it's more of an intellectual satisfaction that I can see that this is how things really are. It doesn't make me feel good, but I have a sense of satisfaction that I'm getting the truth. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, it totally. I, I mean, I totally get that. Like, so if, you know, if the opposite of tragedy is comedy, I find myself, I, I feel the same way about I, uh, why I like tragedy, like, as you just said. When it comes to comedy, I, the comedy I like is more absurdist. Of course. Because it, it does an end run around all of that, right? That's so right. So not romantic comedy. No. That, no, that's that's exactly the problem that you were just talking about. Implausible it, coincidences. It, yes. This is not funny. Right, exactly. <laughs> Unless you're treating it as just something something ridiculous. Exactly. Right. Yeah, no, I, I totally get uh, what Gustin's after here. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So let's go on to section 22 then, sure. as we continue his interaction with Virgil. And uh, you want to read uh, either some of the Latin or some of the translation there at the beginning of 22? I'll read a little bit, lat- a little bit of Latin here. Okay. Um, Sed nunc in anima mea clamat Deus meus, et veritas tua dicat mihi, non est ita, non est ita, melior est process doctrina illa prior. Nam eke paratior sum oblivisci errores aneae, Atque omnia eis modi quam scribula et legera. Very nice. Right. That's very good. Um, give us the Williams translation. Okay, so there. Williams says, But now let my God cry out in my soul, and let your truth say to me, It is not so, it is not so. That earlier teaching is better by far. I would certainly rather forget the wanderings of Aeneas and all that sort of thing than how to read and write. Hmm. Do you agree with that? Yes, on the whole. Really? It's odd, though. I've never thought deeply about this comment of Augustine. I would certainly rather forget the wanderings of Aeneas and all that sort of thing than how to read and write. So I think what he is interacting with here is that earlier comment about nobody likes to study grammar. Everybody wants literature. But then as he goes ahead into literature, he finds there are pitfalls in the study of literature, specifically the ways in which they disorder his emotions. Yes, okay. And yet he still wants to retain the skill that allows him to read anything that comes across, you know, the the transom. Is that an expression? Sure. Okay. And uh, to be able to express himself as well. Okay. So he would rather have basic literacy than um, to have all of the knowledge of what's in the Aeneid and not be able to read and write. That's really interesting. I don't think many people would make that same choice. I don't. Th- I don't think so. I'm not. I'm not sure I would. I mean. Mm. I mean. I. I. I think you know. In that first part, I was. I, one of the um, the corollaries I was thinking of, like you know, like a musician, you gotta you gotta play your scales to death, right? Um, before you can get you know more more free and more creative. Yes, but um, you're a musician, and uh-huh. I understand you barely read music. I don't read music, but I I practice uh, when I have sat down to practice, kind of you know fundamental thing, you know, finger finger exercises, which I'm familiar with. Yeah. Um, even if I don't know what they're you know, if I'm in the Mixolydian mode or whatever, um, <laughs> I, I can see their benefit, right? And it makes me a better player down the line. But um, I wonder if that's part of it, too, is that, you know, in, as a musician, I, I learned by ear and I mimicked things rather than kind of, oh, have a teacher. So, no, play these scales. Mm. So, um, but part of me is also saying, well, wh- why not both? Why does this have to be? An well, act? he had both, right? But, but why does it have to be an either or? Because he's, he's decrying, I think, uh, his... Poor judgment at the time. Okay. Why did I hate going through all the basics? Why did I hate doing the mm. scales? Yeah. Actually, the scales were more useful than the things I learned later because in some ways he outgrew Virgil, which moves us into the next theme here of this episode. Uh, so we're going to finish up here in book one, the confessions, and then we're going to look at two incidents later in his life, which Peter Brown provides us with 
about uh, continuing interaction with Virgil. Okay. So do you want to read some more of the sheed there from section 22? Because all of this is really quite rich. Sure. Um, so uh, picking up after that, so all such things then how to write and read. Over the entrance of these grammar schools hangs a curtain. But this should not be seen as lending honor to the mysteries, but as a cloak to the errors taught within. Let not those masters who have now lost their terrors for me cry out against me, because I confess to you, my God, the desire of my soul, and find souls rest in blaming my evil ways that I might love your holy ways. Let not the buyers or sellers of book learning cry out against me. If I ask them whether it is true, as the poet says, that Aeneas ever went to Carthage, the more ignorant will have to answer that they do not know the more scholarly that he certainly did not. Hmm. What do you make of that? Well, I'm, I'm just kind of, sadly, kind of making the connection, of, of course, you know, uh, in the Dido episode, Aeneas comes to Carthage. I'm just making that connection to, this is Augustine's backyard. Yes, exactly. Right. Was he ever here? What, was he ever here? Right. right. And the part that they, there's a curtain hung over the doorways of the schools of literature, mm-hmm. and then Augustine just blasts all human pretension and vanity to learning. This is one of the most ironic aspects of Augustine's reception. If you want to sound impressive as a, uh, you know, a scholar or especially as a Christian, you cite someone like Augustine. Mm-hmm. And I admire him greatly. But Augustine is primarily concerned to tear down the vanity of human learning in this part, right? Yeah, yeah, These, yeah. these are people who are buyers and sellers of words. Right. Right, buyers and sellers of books. It, it seems to me that he's also kind of wrestling uh, between, um, is there a distinct kind of Christian path to learning and a secular path of learning? He, that, seems to be, yeah. he seems to be kind of drawing that distinction here, right? Well, we're going to see something that bears directly on that point later. Okay. Which I think gets into the most interesting aspect of this episode. Okay, all right. But then to go on, can I read from the Williams yeah, here? Yeah, d- do so. But if I were to ask how the name Aeneas is spelled, everyone who has learned this would give the correct answer according to the convention and custom that human beings have established for the use of these signs. Obviously, uh, Augustine never taught classical mythology. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. With all the variant spellings. How many L's in Iliad? <laughs> 25 by my most recent count. Right, right. Now I'm just being mean yeah. and vain. <laughs> and if I were to ask, which would be a greater hindrance in life, to forget how to read and write or to forget these poetic fancies, anyone not utterly out of his senses would know precisely how to answer. Although he doesn't tell us which it is. (laughs) (laughs) So I was sinning as a boy when I loved those worthless studies more than the quite useful ones, Mm -hmm. or rather hated the useful ones and loved the worthless. But one plus one is two, two plus two is four, was an an annoying sing-song to me in those days, whereas the showcasing of vanity, a wooden ship full of soldiers and Troy ablaze, and the very shade of dead Croesus course that's from Aeneid book two yes was sweet to me above all else very interesting so it i mean so Aeneid or uh, augustine here he sounds to me like a parent uh, saying to his son uh you're going to major in accounting right <laughs> you're going to drop that english major and you're going to do something very practical do you really think it's that simple jeff I, well i mean I think, playing it for laughs i know but i think there's something to that here i think you know when he talks about um, I'd rather, you know, writing, you know, spelling Aeneas's name. That's it's like it's like a science. Everybody agrees upon this. Right. It's like math, right? Mm. And so I think that he sees those things as kind of you know, as foundational, whereas the other stuff is emotional, right, and right. open to many different interpretations, and so therefore kind of more ephemeral. 
um, and um, and more useless. Mm. Don't you think that's what he's saying here? That, yes. Yeah. Yes, and this is part of his general takedown of Roman culture. Hmm. Okay. Well, we got to see where this goes. We got to see where it goes. I guess in uh, section 23, just to wrap up, why then did I hate Greek literature, which is also full of such stories? Homer was adept at weaving such fictions, and there is great sweetness in his vanity, but to me as a boy, he was bitter. I believe Virgil seems this way to Greek children when they are forced to learn him as I was forced to learn Homer. Huh. So here's the issue. Like you were saying, don't tell me to read Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> I'm going to hate it. Right, yeah. It's odd that uh, in the words of George Orwell, right, um, learning always requires force. Yes. He hate Orwell hated the classics. Yeah, I know that. Because yeah. um, he said, I'm not sure anyone can learn Greek and Latin without corporal discipline. <laughs> and this was, of course, Augustine. I'm paraphrasing. It's yeah. pretty close, though. Yeah. This was Augustine's experience. I got beaten if I failed in my letters. Yeah. So the most human of activities where one person teaches another person involves so much strife and conflict. Yeah. And um, and sometimes violence, right? Yeah. And Augustine hates it for that reason. Yeah. I, I mean, I find one of my supreme challenges as a teacher is, and I'm telling and the students... Controlling your temper? Well, well you know, that. <laughs> um, but no, it's, um, you know, knowing these students, these students, you have to read and you have to know this stuff to, you know, get the grade that you want. Yes. So, but how do you also make it very inviting? And, and you, you invite them to, and so this becomes something that they want to do and not necessarily that they have to do. And that is yep. very difficult to do. Well, of course, Socrates figured this out a long time ago, right? Which is, um, there can't be anything mercenary in education. If, if you're being paid to teach, you can't do it properly. Right. Now, when you get to the end of it, your students, if they have really enjoyed the instruction, may voluntarily give you some money. Yeah, pass the hat. Exactly. Yeah. But you can't take it up front because... Any kind of mercenary motive completely corrupts the experience. Right. I think he's right. I know it's impractical. But the worst part about being a professor when I was one was giving grades. I hated it. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Not just because of the grading, but because it changes the dynamic. Right. Right, right. Exactly. And when you get those those emails from students who are you know, scrapping for, for, for points here and points there, you, you, I, I cringe because how did I, how did I fail you? Right. right. You know, but it's, you know, this is this is become become for them in a math. Correct. Yeah. And it can you know you can always spot that letter because it begins very obsequiously, right? <laughs> you get to the third sentence, you know there's an ask coming, and what are you going to do? <laughs> right. I know. I know. I know. You don't want to disappoint these poor kids. Yeah. Sometimes uh, scholarships and law school and all that kind of stuff depends on yeah. an A minus versus an A or a B plus versus a B. Exactly. But still, that's the game. Yeah, it's what yeah. can you do? What can you do? I still think here, Gus. He's he's going to come around. This is he's not leaving us. He's not. These thoughts are not leaving us at the end of his, of his no. thought of these uh, of these things. Right? He's going to come around to see the value of Virgil and not just kind of these flighty fancies that he indulged in as a kid. That's right. So let's go on then. Yes. And we're going to pick up uh, later in Augustine's life. And I want to read another quote from Peter Brown. It's a longish quote, but. Um, Hopefully you will agree that it's well worth it. Yeah. As long as there was nothing to put in its place, Christian critics of a classical education, all the more confused and bit were all the more confused and bitter for lacking constructive alternatives and for being bound by strong, half-conscious ties to the old world. In the fourth century, Christians and pagans alike had been drawn into the conflict with equal blind violence. Christian rejection of the classics was met by a pagan fundamentalism. 
the conservatives crudely divinized, these would be the pagan conservatives, mm -hmm. their traditional literature. The classics are treated as a gift of the gods to men. Christians, for their part, would play in with this reaction by diabolizing, diabolizing, right, making it uh, devilish, the same literature. Many, indeed, wanted to end this tension by denying culture altogether. Unexpectedly sophisticated men were glad to hear of monks who had been taught to read by the Holy Ghost alone. Mm -hmm. Augustine was surprisingly uninvolved in this confused situation. He regarded the last solution, that of bypassing education, as quite ridiculous. The great Jerome would wake trembling from a dream in which Christ had called him a Ciceronian, not a Christian, right? Ciceronianises, uh, non Christianus, that's a quote. Augustine was untroubled by nightmares. He avoided them in a characteristic manner, by hard thinking and by the application of a few basic formulae. He began by remarking that culture was the product of society. It was a natural extension of the fact of language. It was so plainly the creation of social habits as to be quite relative. There could be no absolute standards of classical purism. In the same way, religion also was a specific product of the need to communicate. Pagan rites and sacrifices are no more than a similar agreed language between men and demons. Outside this context, they were not a source of infection to the Christian. In the Aeneid, Virgil could describe pagan sacrifices without arousing a tremor of religious awe in the pagan or religious horror in the pious Christian. Thus, at a stroke, much of classical literature, and indeed the habits of a whole society, were secularized. Consistent to the last, Augustine will even apply his distinctions to the smallest details of dress. Posidius, this is one of uh, Augustine's close associates, Posidius knew from the austerities of Augustine's monastery had tried to abolish earrings among his flock. Hmm. So Posidius, just for a little background, he left the monastery where he was trained by Augustine and he was put in charge of a Christian flock. He wants to abolish earrings. This streak of Puritanism was common in African Christianity. Augustine intervened firmly. Amulets worn to placate demons must go, but earrings worn to please human men could stay. So anti-demon, pro-earring. Exactly. <laughs> That's interesting. But I mean, we see, so we see the man trying to to build a bridge between these two these two sides, trying to the, between the secular and the um, um, monkish, right? right? Or no, that's not the right word, but the um, um, fundamentalist. Uh, and I mean, I, that's a struggle that goes on to this very day. But apparently, there's there's fundamentalists on both sides, right? right. So this takes us to the the Julian the Apostate business of mm -hmm. 360, 361, where you have reactionaries saying, you know, these Christians are they're kind of taking over a lot of culture, and they're they're messing with our traditions of the divine and so forth. So the poetry and the hallmarks of Roman culture, the gods gave these. We have to hold on to them for that reason. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. then the Christian response, right, is to say, oh no, they're all the work of the devil. Right. So I thought this was really interesting where you'd find, what does he say? Unexpectedly, sophisticated men were glad to hear of monks who had been taught to read by the Holy Ghost alone. Mm -hmm. So the idea is it's anti-intellectualism. Yes. Right? So we want people to be able to read the Bible, th these folks would say, but it's best if they don't have to go to school and mingle with all that pagan learning. They're taught by divine intervention. Directly. Yes. Yes. And then you have Jerome, whom you can always count on for something... I don't know what the word is here. <laughs> Amusing, distracting, brilliant, troubling. Yeah. He has this anxious dream where Christ appears to him and says, you're not a Christian, you're in love with Cicero. Yeah. Augustine 
that's not an issue for him. Right. Because of this, uh, this relativizing, secularizing of all culture, right? Yes. And yes. I thought that this part would especially appeal uh, to you and be helpful to our audiences, to our audience, right? All culture is the product of society. It's a natural extension of the fact of language. Yeah. There, there can't be culture that's better than others in any inherent, innate sense. Right, right. Because it's all created by human beings. Yes, yes, exactly, right. So, yeah, and in that I see, I see Augustine as kind of a, a model for, I mean, the way I like to think about uh, right. education and and culture and its connection to my my own faith tradition, mm-hmm. right? And uh, it doesn't have to be kind of this extreme either or, um, you know, whatever uh, whatever lens you know the the extremes are, are using to, to look at these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So at a stroke, he says, much of classical literature and the habits of a whole society were secularized. We're secularized. So yeah. can can I read about the pagan gods in Virgil's Aeneid? Yeah, because it's you know it's just human culture. It's it's entertainment. Right. It doesn't mean I believe in those gods, uh, but then he draws that distinction about the the dress and the wearing. Isn't this interesting? Yeah. What do you think of that? About um, between the earrings and the amulets. Right. Well, I mean, it, it, what it makes me think of is um, when uh, Paul's talking about uh, you know can we eat meat sacrificed to idols? Correct. Right. And, and he, he gives very specific rules. Yeah. And he says, if if it's not a stumbling block to to somebody else, then go for it. Right. Yeah, have a sandwich. That's right. Sandwich, put on a napkin. Yeah. Get a bottle of barbecue sauce. And it's not even if it if what you're doing other people think is wrong, but if if it makes them do something that they think is wrong. Yes. Because there'll always be someone who thinks what you're doing is wrong. Of course. Right. Right. But if you're doing it, makes the you know the so-called weaker brother uh, desire to do something that's going to break his conscience. Then just don't. Right. You don't need meat sacrificed to idols. Exactly. Right. So, so could you give up? Um, who's your favorite classical author? Is it Euripides? Um, I love A- Euripides. Apuleius uh, in, in Latin, Euripides in Greek. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Could you give them up if you had to? Um, I suppose I could. I don't want to. <laughs> I, I, can, I know you don't want to. I can't imagine being put in a situation where that would be. But in this in this scenario, right? Yeah. So the the amulet that was worn around the neck, right? It's mm-hmm. like a magic charm. Yeah. You had to wear it to placate a demon. So it was vested with spiritual significance. Right. So people who wear it as a religious object, Posidius, Augustine, they say, you know, you can't wear that in here. Right. Right. Because you're wearing it because you're afraid of a demon and you're trying to protect yourself. Yes. And that's just fundamentally not Christian. But earrings? Earrings? Eh, go Go for for it. it. Right. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? It is really interesting. Yeah. And And it's, I mean, it's... They say, I, I hear about these same kind of debates repackaged today all right. the time. Right. All the time. You know, they, um, you know, when kind of, especially when kind of when the debate or the talk of, around Christianity gets, gets very rulesy, right? Um, uh, what can you wear? What can you do? Where can you go? What, mm. what can you, what can you eat? What can you, you know, what can you put in your body? What should you, what should you keep out? I right. Mean, this is, he's all, this is the same thing. So you think Augustine would be on your side in all these debates? I, well, I, I, I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't say that, but I think he's, uh, um, I find him very inspiring. Yeah. I, I see a lot, I, I see a lot of what I, I read Augustine along these lines. And I think, yeah, 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 yeah. There's I, a lot of wisdom there. Yeah. Do we want to finish up with this bit about uh, the Pelagians? Yes, please do. So, well, this is more from uh, Peter Brown? Yeah, but I don't want to read the whole quote because okay. it's, again, longish. But I just want to pull out this famous line from Virgil, right? So in the in the Peter Brown book, this comes on page 377. So now we're at the end, pretty much, of Augustine's life, mm-hmm. right? 
but still fascinated by Virgil and using Virgil for his own purposes, right? Yes. So this famous line, Trahet sua quemque voluptas, each man's pleasure, that's the sua voluptas, each man's pleasure draws him. So the thing that we love is what pulls us in whatever direction uh, we want to go, you might say. Mm -hmm. And we can't, we can't control it, right? Like that, that quote in the scriptures, where your treasure is, that's where your heart goes. Right. right? It's not the other way around. Your treasure doesn't follow your heart. Yes. The heart follows oh, the, the treasure. treasure. Right, exactly. And that's, that's the deep insight, I think, that Virgil caught and Augustine, you know, repackages. Uh, so could you, you start reading that, that part, maybe? Um, the Sermon by the Old Man, the Gospel of St. John. Right. So, yes, the notorious tag of, of Virgil, each man's pleasure draws him, occurs, occurs surprisingly in a sermon by the old man in the Gospel of St. John. And, and the old man here is, of course, Augustine. Yes. Right. Um, and have the senses of the body their delights, while the soul is left devoid of pleasures? If the soul does not have pleasures of its own, why is it written, The soul of a man shall hope under the shadow of thy wings. They shall be made drunk with the fullness of the house and of the torrents of thy pleasures that will give them to drink. For in thee is the fountain of life, and in thy light we shall see light. Hmm. you got to continue. Oh, give, <laughs> give me a man in love. He knows what I mean. Give me one who yearns. Give me one who is hungry. Give me one far away in the desert who is thirsty and sighs for the spring of the eternal country. Give me that sort of man. He knows what I mean. But if I speak to a cold man, he just does not know what I am talking about. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Isn't that nice? I love that. Yeah. So, so Augustine's preaching a sermon, right? And yeah. and he's talking about people are drawn to what they love and it's in some ways out of their control. Yeah. So the the good thing is when we're taught to love the right things, then we're not forced to do anything. Yeah. If if you had uh, innately loved Catcher in the Rye, nobody would have had to compel you to read it. Right. You'd just been drawn toward it. Right, right, Which right. eventually you were, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, definitely. But without force. Yes, exactly. But the, to me, the really fascinating thing is Augustine's preaching this sermon, the Gospel of St. John. I don't know if the exact date, it's 420 or something like that. So he is, uh, he's 70 years old, approximately. He's approaching 70. And Augustine, I'm sorry, Virgil, still lives right there in his imagination yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it, from the very beginning and all through his life. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's fascinating and, fascinating and wonderful. Mm. Well, Jeff, we have to wrap it up here. we got to get out of here. We're up against it, as we as we often say. Yes. Yep. So uh, let's wrap this up. Dave, you want to tell us a little bit about the Moss Method? Yes, I'll be brief. If you want to study Greek, you don't want to have the experience that Augustine did of hating Greek study as a child, <laughs> uh, come study with me. I can't promise it'll all be delights, but it won't all be tears either. I, and I want to extend kind of the, the last idea that we're, I think, you know, we, um, you know, our, our, our hearts draw us towards, you know, right. uh, towards things. But I think we're also drawn to things um, that other people love. And that can be a yes. conduit, right? And That's it, friendship. That, yes, but I think that someone, someone who's passionate about something, that that passion can transfer Absolutely. to another, right? And, so, and I think that's what you do with the Moss Method. Oh, that's very kind of you. Yeah, I know that there are some things that I have grown to love just because other people whom I love have drawn me toward them. Sure. Yeah, me too. For yeah. sure. So go to mossmethod.com and check out the free instruction that I have. Lots of videos on the New Testament on classical authors. See if you'd like to sign up for the course. We've got the office hours every Friday. Maybe Winkle will make an appearance one of these times. Yeah, I'll, it'll be a surprise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Zoom bomb. There we go. Yep. 
Excellent. Hey, uh, we got people to thank as always. Right. Uh, we thank uh, thanks go out to Mishka, our intrepid engineer who puts this stitches this all together. Um, we want to thank Scott Van Zen, the, yep. the great guitarist for the intro music. Uh, Ken Tamplin, one of the composers of that music, and also uh, wrote and composed and performed. Multi instrumentalist, multi uh, multi octave vocalist. The bumper music for the ads, uh, so generous with their time and talent. Yeah, check out his vocal academy online and uh, his, some of his reaction videos, and you'll, you'll, hours will go by. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Scott runs a really great guitar school if you want to learn to play like that. Fantastic. And if you have about 20 years worth of practice, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. So if you'd like to get a shout out, you want to send us a question, make a comment, like and subscribe, leave a review on your favorite podcast site, Spotify, Apple, iTunes, something like that. Even if you find us tedious. If you find us tedious and tiresome, yeah. <laughs> you can send Jeff the tedious and tiresome criticisms to Jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or to Dave at Dave at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. You could pick up a Kwai Nokent Dokent t-shirt if you'd like that as well. Very fashionable. That's Every, right. Everyone's got them. So Jeff, what are we going to do for next week? Next week, are we, uh, are we back into the Aeneid? Uh, book four. Are we? I, well, I, I think uh, probably. It's your call here, man. It's my call. Um, I really enjoyed this episode, so I might want to take another kind of breather from it. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we're going to pencil in any book four. Okay. But, uh, listener, anything can happen. We want to keep them in suspense. We do. To some extent. We have this uh, excellent, I think it'll be an excellent episode that's brewing on uh, the Renaissance view of the dignity of man. Excellent. I think we could have a lot of fun with that. Very cool. Mm -hmm. And Dave, you have our guest story parting shot. I do. This one comes from a man named Frank Tayel in his work, London. I don't know anything about the man uh, or the work, <laughs> and I'm a little uh, hesitant to read what it says because yeah, it's, it's, very strange. it's quite disturbing, yeah. but here we go. One day, and it may be long off, but one day there will be bacon again. It might be mouse bacon, but that will do for me. What kind of dystopia is he talking about? I don't know. <laughs> Where does the bacon come from? It's the belly, isn't it? The belly, the belly of, the of the hog. Right. Exactly. And, and I love bacon. You love bacon. I love bacon. I don't like the, the, the notion the, of you mouse don't, bacon. You don't like the concept, the mental image of mouse that's, bacon. That's awful. Well, thanks, Frank. Yeah. But thanks thank, for listening. Thank you for listening.